Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo recently signed a package of voting reforms, including ones that ease the rules and restrictions on mail-in absentee balloting. But a leading voter access advocate says the state still has more to do before mail-in balloting is universally accessible. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. The bills that Cuomo signed include eliminating the requirement that voters have to submit applications for absentee ballots that include their signature. They'll now be able to request the ballots by an unsigned letter or by going online to get one mailed to them. Ballots can be postmarked up until Election Day. Previously, they had to be stamped seven days before Election Day in order to count. The legislation also requires boards of elections to better inform voters when changes are made to polling places. Jennifer Wilson with the League of Women Voters says some of the changes are positive steps in the ongoing process of easing New York's often confusing voting procedures, but she says others are not so beneficial. We don't love all of them, truthfully. She says one of the changes actually takes New York backward. It will require voters to request an absentee ballot 15 or more days before election instead of the prior rule of one week. Lawmakers say they're following the advice of the Federal Postal Service. It says more time is needed due to chronic delays in delivering mail because of staff reductions and other cost-cutting measures. Wilson says New York now has one of the earliest deadlines in the nation for requesting ballots. We don't need to have 15 days. We could easily do 11 days. A seven is actually closer in line what most states have seven days ahead of the election. So not all of these policies are pro-voter policies. Let's just say that. Some bigger changes to voting rules could take place after this November's elections. A measure on the ballot this fall would amend the state's constitution to allow for widespread mail-in voting. It could lead to no-excuse absentee voting by ending the requirement that voters can only get absentee ballots if they're ill or out of the state on Election Day. During the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, New Yorkers could request a ballot if they cited the pandemic as a reason, but those exceptions have now ended. A second ballot referendum would pave the way for same-day voter registration by rescinding the constitutional requirement that voters must register to vote 10 days or longer before an election. Even if New York's voters approve the measures, the governor and legislature would still have to create new laws in 2022 to specifically allow same-day voter registration and universal mail-in voting by the fall. There does need to be supporting statutory language that'll have to happen next year in order to actually have these policies be fully in effect. Other voting law changes approved by Cuomo include a rule that will allow candidates who lose in a party primary election to remove their name from minor party ballot lines if they want to do so. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. A Malta-based semiconductor manufacturer, Global Foundries, announced this week it will move to meet the global demand for computer chips by building a second chip plant in Saratoga County. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard was there and filed this report. Today we're announcing, here and now, that we will construct a new fab here at this site in Malta, New York. 
With around 3,000 personnel in Malta, Global Foundries is one of the region's largest employers, and with plans to build a second fab, more jobs will come, according to company CEO Tom Caulfield. This new fab will require investments in the billions and will not just support U.S. manufacturing, but also add approximately 1,000 new jobs directly by GF and thousands of jobs indirectly, including construction and infrastructure jobs. An additional $1 billion investment would build out capacity of the existing Fab 8 plant. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called it a fabulous day for the capital region. The Democrat highlighted $52 billion in proposed federal incentives for semiconductor manufacturing, part of a bill that has already cleared the upper chamber. Part of the investment is a $2 billion for legacy chip production, exactly like the chips made here at Global Foundries. What brought us here today and so many industries, someone from Ford is here, so many industries depend on those chips. So that's a great thing. Now I'm working hard with the House to pass this into law and turbocharge the domestic semiconductor industry, including here at Global Foundries and across upstate. Upon passage of the semiconductor bill that has the support of President Joe Biden, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said the federal government would work with industry to get the most out of the $52 billion, which she called a once-in-a-generation investment. So we're going to work in collaboration with industry, with private sector partners, with university partners, with the government to make sure we get this right. And by the way, we all know $52 billion isn't nearly enough. That's the tip of the spear. I, we hope to invest that money in a way that it unlocks another 100 or 200 from the private sector. Caulfield said although almost half of global semiconductor demand is generated by U.S. headquartered companies, only 12 percent is manufactured domestically. He said the company will be pursuing an economic model based on deeper partnerships adding the industry will not move forward unless all areas of the supply chain are addressed. The challenge is to create the new economic model, the partnership model, that enables our industry to double its size in the next eight years, to grow to a trillion dollars. That's our call, the call for this industry to create the semiconductors that the world needs. Global Foundries moved its headquarters from Silicon Valley to Malta in April. During a Q&A with reporters, Caulfield was asked about rumors that Intel was planning to purchase GEF for $30 billion, first reported in the Wall Street Journal. I didn't see this coming. Look, uh, we, we, commented, we commented last week. It hasn't changed. There's nothing to that story. What's important is what the story is today. This idea of rebranding the company was about us as a team committed to be bold, to make the kinds of investments, to, to create the, the, the technology for society. And so, that, you know, we got to get that news behind us and make this the, the headline today. Caulfield said the new facility is still in the planning stages. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina.
Joining us now, Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Shartok. Alan, this week, a really interesting conversation. Former state senator and assemblyman, now the Westchester County Executive, George Latimer. He was very articulate. He seemed to have a firm grip of many of the issues that are on the table. And you even got to the point of saying, depending on what happens with current Governor Andrew Cuomo and the investigations, would you consider a run for governor? Listen, this guy Latimer is one impressive dude, that is for sure. He's articulate, he's to the point, he's thought about many things, and when, because most people don't know him yet, when people hear him, they might be saying, well, you know, this guy could be gubernatorial material. Look, he's been the county executive. That's, you know, one step below. It means he's run a government. And I would say that he has a shot if Andrew gets out. And we don't know whether Andrew's getting out. I doubt it very much. He's going to stick with it no matter what happens. I think I know the guy well enough to know that that's what happens. You know, I wrote a column this week, David, about his relationship with his father. His father was a very bright guy and a very nice man. Andrew was, you know, the front man. Andrew did a lot of the tough work. Let's just put it that way for Mario. But... Right now, Andrew is in a situation where he is looking at the way in which this is all going to be unfolding. And at some point, he may have to say, well, okay, they really are out to get me. If I remove myself, much like Elliot Spitzer does, the pressure goes off and the, the threat of civil action, criminal action, that kind of thing goes away. But right now, because I've named him Tough Guy Andrew, he's sticking with it. And, you know, we're getting mail here at the station when we discuss this saying, I love Andrew Cuomo, which puts, of course, you know, to shames into a very tough situation as attorney general, otherwise known AG, uh, uh, almost governor. You know, she's ambitious. How do we know she's ambitious? People say to me, how do you know she's ambitious? Well, she ran for attorney general, didn't she? Would she like to be governor? Yes, I'm sure she would. But can she do it? Not as long as Andrew's in it. So if they don't scare Andrew out, I don't see how it happens. The other thing you highlighted with him was education. And there's no better place to look at the extreme highs and lows in terms of equity in education than Westchester County. I mean, you look at a place, you pointed out Scarsdale, mm -hmm. and then you have a place like Mount Vernon. And by the way, he agreed with that. Yeah. I wasn't sure he would. But in fact, he has to be concerned about everybody who lives in his county. And he knows that those schools that are underfunded, in contrast to a Scarsdale, which is incredibly well-funded, because people are choosing one of the premier school systems in the United States to go and move to, and sometimes because the taxes are so high, move out as soon as the kids are out. It's sort of like private school, but private government. So he knows that, and it is a truth that some of our districts and some of our kids are incredibly underfunded compared to those who are at the top of the social and economic scale. Legislative Gazette Political Observer, Alan Shartalk. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette.
a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. More than 80 organizations are urging New York Governor Andrew Cuomo to protect Rockland County drinking water from PFAS contamination. It comes some seven months after residents learned the county's drinking water in several locations was contaminated with PFOA and PFOS. More from the Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn. Peggy Kurtz is co-founder of the Rockland Water Coalition, which came up with a list of cleanup actions when the contamination came to light. Last November, Suez and Nyack water customers were notified that PFAS chemicals had been detected in our drinking water at levels that exceed state standards. The coalition began reaching out to environmental professionals and health experts to learn more, and what we learned was alarming. The phrase we have heard over and over again from experts is, that there are no known safe levels of PFAS. Kurt says the coalition's list of recommended actions has gone, for the most part, unheeded. So 84 Rockland organizations have written to Governor Cuomo, demanding his administration take care of seven items. Our demands fall into three broad categories, comprehensive and safe cleanup, transparency and accountability, and stronger statewide standards. The Rockland Water Coalition, along with dozens of local religious, civic, and environmental organizations, plus schools and businesses, signed a July letter to Governor Cuomo asking that he eliminate PFAS chemicals from the water as quickly and comprehensively as possible, keep the public informed about the full extent of the contamination and cleanup, comprehensively test for all 29 detectable PFAS chemicals, and publicly post the results, and identify polluters and hold them financially accountable. Kurtz acknowledges that Suez has been posting the results of its water testing, but wants the company to test for double the PFAS chemicals. Tina Posterly is with Planned Parenthood Hudson Peconic. As a sexual and reproductive health care and prenatal health care provider, we are increasingly concerned about evidence leaking high, linking high PFAS chemical rates to negative outcomes for reproductive health, fertility, and pregnancy outcomes, including low birth weight, preeclampsia, and high blood pressure for pregnant people. Another of the group's demands is to provide up-to-date information to health care providers and free blood testing to vulnerable populations, including women who are pregnant. Environmental and health officials say PFAS chemicals can cause a number of adverse health effects, including on the thyroid, pancreas, and immune system, and are linked to kidney and testicular cancer. On August 26, 2020, New York State adopted maximum contaminant levels for PFOA and PFOS at 10 parts per trillion each. A DOH spokesperson says, quote, both Suez Water New York and the village of Nyack are implementing approved corrective action plans to install additional treatment to reduce the levels of PFOA and PFOS below the new state standard. Both of these public water systems are providing quarterly progress reports and the results of their water sampling analysis on their public websites for their customers and the general public to review, end quote. The Suez Water System is the largest serving Rockland County. It includes some 60 wells around the county and in New Jersey, along with multiple reservoirs. More than 300,000 Rockland residents are potentially impacted. Suez spokesman Bill Madden says the company launched a dedicated website in November that explains the water quality issue, outlines a remediation plan, and includes progress reports on sampling work. Suez will install granular activated carbon filtration to remove PFOA and PFOS from the water. The Rockland Water Coalition is asking for safe disposal of PFAS from the spent carbon filters. 
Madden says Suez communicated directly with its customers through mail, email, and social media about the PFAS issue, as well as co-hosted a virtual public forum at the end of June called What's Next for PFAS, which featured a panel of national, state, and regional experts. New York State Department of Environmental Conservation Chief of Staff Sean Mahar spoke during the forum and said an investigation into the source or sources of contamination continues. Officials say the contamination in Rockland is widespread and at relatively low levels. DEC is working with the State Department of Health, Rockland County Department of Health, and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency on the issue. A DEC spokesperson says, quote, DEC's investigation of potential sources of contamination, including legacy cleanup sites, has not identified sources of contamination. We are reviewing the letter and will continue to work with community residents and other stakeholders on the state's ongoing efforts to address these low-level detections in the Rockland water supply, end quote. Again, the Rockland Water Coalition's Kurtz. Ultimately, this issue is like the issue of lead. There are no known safe levels. And until we stop the production of these chemicals, we will continue to see more and more communities exposed to a plague, this plague of chemicals. The two other demands in the letter call for regulating all PFAS and drinking water as a class at the state level, which environmentalists and others have been urging for some time, and supporting legislation to ban the production of PFAS in non-essential uses. Speaking for the Ramapo-Muncie-Lenape Nation, Owl Smith says the PFAS issue is important. It's the latest in a long string of, of chemicals that we are putting into our environment and our water. And it doesn't take a genius or a medicine man to realize that what we put in the air and the water we're, we're putting into ourselves. In addition, the Rockland Water Coalition and others are calling on Governor Cuomo to sign the Emerging Contaminant Monitoring Act, which would add 40 chemicals to the list of emerging contaminants. Rob Hayes is director of Clean Water with Environmental Advocates New York. And so this legislation is really critical to better understand how much PFAS people are being exposed to in their drinking water all across the state. Uh, the state legislature passed this bill at the end of their session last month, uh, and now it's up to Governor Cuomo to sign it, to make it law, to finally jumpstart this water testing so that people know what's in their drinking water and we can take action to prevent any dangerous contamination that might be out there. Democrat James Skoufis sponsored the bill in the Senate. His 39th district includes Newburgh, which has been grappling with PFOS contamination for more than five years, stemming from the historic use of firefighting foam at Stewart Air National Guard Base. Manhattan Democrat Richard Gottfried sponsored the bill in the Assembly. A spokesperson for the governor did not respond to a request for comment. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Allison Dunn. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The Adirondack Park Agency is 50 years old this year. Its formation was controversial. The new book, A Wild Idea, How the Environmental Movement Tamed the Adirondacks, traces the evolution of the agency and the people involved in its creation. In the first part of their interview, author Brad Edmondson explains to the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley why the creation of the APA was a wild idea. It was a wild idea because nobody had ever 
tried it before. Uh, there were two things that were really out there uh, for uh, for their time, and they're actually still pretty radical. Um, one was the state of New York assumed zoning control over six million acres of land. Usually zoning is a town and village responsibility, but the state of New York decided that the towns and villages of the Adirondacks couldn't handle the challenges that the park was facing, so they basically assumed control over an area the size of Vermont. And uh, as you might imagine, the towns and villages didn't like that one bit. So that was pretty wild. And then the other thing was that the ideas that were driving the land use plan that the state drafted were new at the time. It was essentially the environmental impact statement, which is everybody kind of knows what that is now and that's a standard part of any application process. But in 1971, people hadn't really had very much uh, experience with environmental impact statements. And uh, it was kind of a, a proof of concept for that uh, over a huge area. So it was a, a very, very ambitious thing to do. What drew you to take a look at the formation of the Adirondack Park Agency 50 years ago? Well, initially, it wasn't going to be a book. I was approached by a friend who uh, was involved with the formation of the park agency 18 years ago, who gave me a little bit of support and paid my expenses to go do oral history interviews with some of the people who had set up the park agency. And uh, I thought, this is cool. This is going to be a, a way to get my expenses paid to go camping in the Adirondacks and have some interesting conversations. But land use planning is really kind of dull, you know, so this is just a good gig. I was a freelance writer. And it started off with Clarence Petty. And you probably met Clarence. Anybody who's met Clarence is immediately hooked on the Adirondacks. He was a terrific storyteller. And I spent 10 hours uh, of taping him. And by the time I was finished with him, I was completely absorbed in the story. And the deeper I got into it, the more interesting it got. This is anything but a boring story. There's a tremendous amount of drama in it because it really is about a clash of values on a very deep level. And uh, that is continuing today. Brad Edmondson, you mentioned Clarence Petty, but... You ended up talking to more than 50 people who were involved in some way in establishing the Adirondack Park Agency. How did you end up getting a hold of them and getting them to agree to talk about their experience? Because it's not just people who were for the formation of the Adirondack Park Agency. It's also some people that were adamantly against this whole idea how did you approach them? How did you get them to be part of this oral record of what happened? That's a great question, and it was the answer was surprising to me. I was funded by someone who had been the Atlantic chapter president of the Sierra Club, and he wanted me to capture the stories of the environmental movement, which I did. But as I got more involved in it, I got more and more interested in the opposition to the Adirondack Park Agency because I felt like the people 
who were fighting the agency really had some legitimate points. But I was concerned that they would sort of brand me as an enemy. Um, and what I found actually was that if you're just, uh, if you just show up and say you're interested in hearing uh, someone's story and uh, you don't really um, telegraph any other intention than listening, people are eager to talk. And the Adirondacks is really a very small town. It's the size of Vermont, but it, there's only about 100,000, 110,000 permanent residents. Everybody knows everybody else. What I found was that a lot of the hardcore environmental people I spoke with actually knew and were friendly with the hardcore anti-APA people. And um, a recommendation from uh, Peter Payne, for example, uh, one of the most famous environmental pro-environment leaders, um, got me in the door to Andy Halloran, who was the Essex County judge and a real uh, opponent of the APA. But the two men are friends. Yet at some point during the formation of the APA, after it had gotten approval and was working, there was actually violence. A lot of people forget that there was violence and hostility. You know, your book does trace the, the fact that this was not easy, and here we go. We've got Absolutely. this set up in the Adirondacks now. There was violence. There was a lot more threat than there was actual violence. There was a lot more really tough talk, um, um, threatening talk. And the actual violent acts uh, that everyone remembers mostly took place in between 1989 and 1992. Um, in the 1970s, when the Adirondack Park Agency was being created, most of the people who lived here either didn't know what was happening or didn't care. And uh, by the time the private land plan was released for public comment at the end of 1972, um, really only a few full-time park residents understood that something very big was about to happen. And the law was passed five months later, so there really wasn't very much time for the local people to react. Brad Edmondson, speaking with the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley about the new book, A Wild Idea, How the Environmental Movement Tamed the Adirondacks. Part two of their interview airs next week. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2130. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.